Talking Animals on WMNF. My guest today is Babs Fry, a San Diego-based pet recovery specialist, or put it another way, she's a pet detective. For several years now, she's worked to help pet owners find their animals, but worked may not be quite the right word in that Fry volunteers her services. She refuses to take a dime for helping find those missing pets. While most of her efforts center on the San Diego and Southern California areas, Fry does conduct phone consultations to help locate missing pets in other states, even other countries in some cases. Additionally, the area in and around where Fry lives has been threatened by raging wildfires, posing additional challenges for the animals and how to find missing ones. We'll discuss this very current aspect of being a pet detective, how she got into this line of work, her recommended techniques for locating missing pets, some of which may seem counterintuitive, and more. I want to speak with Babs Fry in a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll speak with Dr. Daryl Hurd, an associate professor of zoological medicine at the University of Florida who headed the team who, that recently treated a 12-foot alligator named Bob from the St. Augustine Alligator Farm Zoological Park in a story that went viral. We'll get details from Dr. Hurd, including how Bob is doing later in the show. Right now, though, let's talk missing pets and how to find them with Babs. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Babs Fry on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Babs. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you for having me. And I know it's bright and early because you're out on the West Coast, so thanks all the more for uh, being ready to uh, to chat at uh, 7 in the morning or thereabouts your time. So, appreciate My it. My pleasure. So, uh, first, just so I know I'm using the term that works for you, do you consider yourself a pet recovery specialist, a pet detective, or something else altogether? I typically call myself a pet recovery specialist. Okay. And how does that differ from what many of us might think of when we do hear the term pet detective? Well, I mean, I guess in all honesty, when I hear pet detective, I think of Ace Ventura. Yeah. Um, but more more realistically, a lot of people presume me to be an animal communicator or psychic. And, you know, that's obviously not what I do or my specialty. And so, you know, pet recovery specialist has a lot more to do with the recovery of pets and animals that are in the field. I got gotcha. you. So, whatever the term, and we'll now we'll now that I know that you prefer pet recovery specialist. That's what we'll go with. Regardless, that line of work is a pretty tiny fraternity for sure, and kind of a pretty esoteric career path. So, how did you get started doing that kind of work? I actually, I lost a dog. Okay, I lost a dog and got a very quick crash course on not only how little myself, as someone having been in rescue and around animals for a long time, knew, but also how little 
generally, the information was readily available to, to both the public and rescue community as far as, you know, the right steps to take and more specifically the mistakes to avoid when, you know, a pet or an animal goes missing. So by virtue of having your own pet go missing and then stepping into that, did you just think, wow, that's, there's a lot of things that I've learned here because presumably you found your own missing animal. I did, you know, yeah. um, it was a combination of learning how much we didn't know and more specifically recognizing the need to pay it forward. You know, I was beyond grateful for the support and guidance I got from someone else who at the time did what I do and still does just on a smaller scale. And, you know, in all honesty, I, you know, I had been in rescue a very long time. I lost foster number something, 200 and something. Wow. Uh, my particular foster was very, very, very fearful. And to be frank, you know, I didn't think, I mean, a dog wouldn't come to me. It was going to come to anybody. And um, I, I was stunned at how absolutely uh, counterintuitive everything that I was told to do was and how everything we as human beings do, well, not everything, but most things that we do really are, are either counterproductive or not in line with dog behavior. They're much more in line with, you know, human-driven fears and feelings and guilt that sometimes can get in the way or set back recovery efforts. Well, I use the, the word myself counterintuitive in the introduction, so I think we'll circle back to that because some of your recommended procedures, I think, include at least one or more that people who aren't steeped in this world the way you are would think of as counterintuitive. But let me let That's me crazy. first follow up a little bit more on the, uh, the foster thing, because when someone mentions casually that they foster 200 or more dogs, I mean, that <laughs> we don't we don't let that slip by. So when did you start fostering dogs? And, and more to the point, maybe let's go all the way back. Did you grow up with animals and loving animals or in a, in a family that had animals? Because this, this sounds I, like it's a longstanding uh, passion. I, I did. You know, I, I've always had a special connection with animals. I've grown up with animals. Um, you know, I have been rescuing and bringing things home as pretty much as long as I could bring them home in my pockets, much to my parents' dismay. Um, you know, and as I got older, I mean, it was just something I always had a true passion about and a true drive to do. And, you know, as we got into our young adult years, you know, we realized that while we could not have every animal, we could certainly, you know, serve the community and more specifically help a lot more animals by getting involved in fostering. And through that process, um, I guess, honestly, I learned that I had a, a gift um, and, and a talent, most specifically with the intensely and incredibly fearful dogs, the, the dogs that other people can't uh, handle or, you know, um, rehabilitate. Yeah. And so that kind of was, was my niche or my specialty in the, in the rescue world was the medically intense and the very frightened or sometimes aggressive, you know, dogs, oftentimes pregnant moms. And... You know, that's how we were a revolving door. We had many, many, many moms and, and dogs come through our household. And to be honest with you, they and my horses have truly taught me just about everything I know about what I do. Wow. Animal observation is a powerful, powerful teaching tool if you take the time to watch and observe and notice just the smallest details. So it sounds like with, uh, I guess, various rescues or other organizations, when they did have a, a fearful dog or a dog that otherwise kind of fit that description, it'd be like, well, this is one another one for Babs. Is that kind of just you were just the go-to person for dogs that were uh, fearful or otherwise had kind of some of those challenges? Very much so. And in some cases, I was somewhat of a last resort. Oh, wow. So it's like, hey, we've tried everything. Maybe Babs can... Uh, can pull this off? It's not so much about Baz pulling it off as it is, you know, you know, taking on some cases is not something that works for everybody or that every household is suitable for. Um, 
you know, I, I guess to be honest, we just didn't have a lot of boundaries as far as what we were willing to attempt or take on and how we were going to handle it. And, you know, every case was different. Every scenario involved a different length of time or a different, different lesson sometimes even for us. But, uh, you know, again, you know, the biggest teachers in my household have always been the dogs. We always had a revolving door of, you know, one dog that had come in completely incapable of experiencing life, let alone a household that we would nurture through to a certain point and then the dog that was ahead of it would teach it how to play and how to become a dog and then the dog ahead of it you know and it was just it was a cycle yeah and when you say we and us are you talking uh, both about uh, growing up in your own family as, as a as a young person as a kid and then in, in your formative years or are you talking about later with with you know when you're out on your own in your own household your own family no, I mean, most of my rescuing, per se, uh, was predominantly in, um, you know, in my in my adult years mm-hmm. after, I, after I got married. I mean, I think, in all honesty, I think some of my passion started in my, uh, in my youth. Uh, my dad happened to be military, and we spent quite an extensive amount of time in Naples, Italy, mm. where there is a pretty hefty stray population, and I think that's maybe where you know, that fire to help these animals and to do something for the animals that were suffering or didn't have people caring for them started. Yeah. Um, I know I remember my mom and I, many animals, you know, that we, we supported off the streets and facilitated getting to one of only a few shelters there to get the care and the help that they needed, you know, but most of my rescue experience and, and then obviously parlay into what I'm doing now has been in my adult years, you know, with my husband. Yeah, I got you. So when you uh, were first fostering in those maybe adult years, uh, um, what what was that like? Would you remember the first one or two fosters in particular? Because it sounds like uh, it was a profound experience because uh, for you to keep going for 199 or so more, uh, something really powerful happened. Um, so what what was that like, that first foster or maybe the first couple of fosters? Because it sounds like that really did shape things. Well, you know, it, it did because, the, the, um, you know, I remember at the time talking to, I, we weren't looking to foster at the time. We actually had kind of downsized over the course of years. We had, you know, our, our pack had slimmed down because of age or illness. You know, and we were in a position where we wanted to add to our household and interviewing with one of the rescues here in Southern California. And um, one of the dogs that we were very much interested in, you know, was not available, but they asked about fostering. And I think my response verbatim was, we aren't good foster candidates. You know, nothing ever leaves. I would never be able to let them go. Mm-hmm. And this particular dog had no other option. Very, very fearful. Um, had been in one rescue temporarily or a foster temporarily placed with another, you know, and ultimately had no choice. In fact, the rescue was starting to consider, you know, humane euthanasia as an option for this dog who also happened to be a senior. Yeah. And it kind of suckered me. I mean, how could I say no to that? Right. And so now admittedly that one stayed forever. Yeah. But sounds like it had the makings for a foster fail (laughs) as you, as you were describing this. So yeah, it did. But um, you know, they already had me hooked and they had a need for a very fearful pregnant mom off the streets of Mexico. Um, we agreed to do it and I struggled, you know, I struggled a lot in the beginning with letting that dog go. She was very fearful, had some issues, um, you know, but that foster coordinator did a really good job of mentoring me through, 
you know, if you keep her, you won't be able to help others. And the bottom line is that has always been a struggle for me to not be able to help them all um, or save them all or do more. And so, you know, she said those magic words, which she didn't realize at the time were what made the difference. And it was not easy. It was very hard. Um, a lot of emotions. But that dog went on to have an amazing life, mm. um, well beyond what I ever would have anticipated for her. And it opened the door to, I mean, literally, you know, hundreds of other moms and puppies and dogs and things coming through our household. And, you know, and I still operate on that premise. Um, you know, I still have probably, you know, more than most people because I do run a rescue and a, and a kennel of dogs that are either lifers or they just are not in a position to be able to be rehabilitated. But I always joke that I don't have a good buddy dog. And that is because, you know, for every perfect dog that I trap or dog that I rehabilitate after trapping or through other means to, you know, be placed in a home, if I keep those dogs that can go on to bigger, better futures in a 24-7 home of their own, Mm -hmm. then I don't have space for that dog that, isn't in a position right. to be able to go somewhere or get rehabilitated. Yeah. So it's actually, it's, it was a really good lesson for me that opened the door to what I do now. Yeah, well, and also, uh, you kind of touched on it, and I was going to get into this, even though it's never a great topic, but but when you talk about uh, fearful dogs and, and the importance of uh, having a, a knack or a gift for, for working with them, because, yeah, a lot of times... After a while, when when a dog is super fearful and and been in a, a rescue or a shelter some for some length of time, and can't seem to snap out of that, or there isn't a Babs to to bring them out of that, then unfortunately sometimes the the last resort is is implemented, which is to euthanize that dog just because they're they're not otherwise going to go to to a home. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so again, all the more important that uh, that the, that's, I guess, been your your specialty, and that a lot of dogs that otherwise might have been up against that dark fate uh, went on to, to be in, in great homes and have great lives. Very, very much so. Yeah. So this is talk. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and if you just tuned in, my guest is Babs Fry, San Diego-based. Um, Sorry, let's make sure I got a pet recovery specialist, and she helps pet owners find their missing pets, but does not charge uh, for her services. She can also recommend techniques for locating your missing animals wherever they are. Some of which, uh, some of those techniques may seem uh, a bit counterintuitive, as we touched on, and we'll, we'll delve into further. So, if you'd like to ask Babs a question or offer a comment, maybe you have a pet that's missing, or you've had some questions about what to do if one does go missing. You can join the conversation at 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So how did the fostering efforts, in the, which were obviously considerable, how did those kind of evolve into uh, then helping people uh, find their own lost pets? Was it just directly in the wake of you finding your missing one? It was, Duncan. Um, you know, when, and, and I wouldn't necessarily say that we found our missing one. You know, when our, when our foster went missing, I think even then without being aware of it, I had some, I don't know, some good intuition about what to do. That particular dog had actually come into the rescue with another dog. 
Um, I knew I am. I knew that was the only thing that was going to work to give us any hope of getting the dog back. So I immediately went and got that other dog. You know, when I connected with, you know, Laura, um, I'm going to tell you very honestly that every evening when she left, uh, I looked at my husband and told him she was crazy because all of the things that she was telling us to do, first of all, being that this dog who literally quaked at the near sight of you, peed and pooped herself if you touched her, and by the way, had been at my house for less than 12 hours, was going to come back to my house, um, I'd have told you you have, were off your rocker. Um, I, a lot of the things that she suggested that we do, and by the way, this uh, my specialty at the time was pretty much large breeds, but this turned out to be, I don't know, 40, 45 pound little nugget. We live in the back country with regular roaming mountain lions and coyotes and bobcats and you name it. And um, she repeated to me regularly that this dog had the ability to survive. And I just couldn't see that happening. And if you told me that that dog was going to be in a humane trap in my driveway seven days later, I would have never believed you. And through the course of doing all of that, it made me not just a believer but it really made me realize how many other people out there might be missing opportunities or making very common mistakes like looking for your dog, which is effectively hunting it down, spreading scent, taking it on a wild goose chase, and definitely not setting it up for success. You know, flyering. Flyering is huge, and it's an absolute necessity. But how you flyer and what your flyer says and posters and an effective PR campaign, you know, are crucial. You know, human instinct is to go out with emotional pleas and passionate stories. And the reality is that's incites chase. And when you have a dog who has gotten off or loose, even friendly, but experiences something that leaves it being fearful, there's nothing you can do to change that. But the minute you stop thinking about this animal operating on instinct you're getting it yourself and the dog into trouble. Okay, so we're kind of squeezed up. We have, luckily, we have a lot of time to sort of delve into some of these things because you uh, slammed together a bunch of stuff that we I did want to kind of explore more step-by-step step, just because I think it's going to be really helpful for people who, if they haven't lost an animal, often it's coming because just things happen, as you know, better than, uh -huh. better than most. So that foster went missing. You learned a lot. You already explained. But when did you, I mean, you already explained earlier that you had a knack for certain fosters, uh, fearful ones, et cetera. When did you realize you had a knack for locating dogs uh, that had gone missing? You know, I don't know that I really realized it. I know that after we got Prada back, I vowed to pay it forward. That was my premise, was to move it on. And I learned, I just started sharing my experiences. And through sharing my experiences, in all honesty, I started having more people reach out to me. And so I continued to share my experiences and the things that I taught or was taught. And, you know, I, I reached out and I asked questions and took guidance. And to be honest with you, pestered Laura probably more than she enjoyed because I really desperately wanted to learn more about this, to make a difference. And so, you know, it was through time and sharing. And eventually, you know, my phone never stopped ringing and I, you know, and I got to see a lot of success and I got to see, you know, I got to see through working with other people, the evolution of fine tuning my methods, the things that I say, how you deal with different people and different dogs, um, you know, and that's still the case today. You know, yeah. I always tell people, you know, that, you know, I don't know everything. My way is not the only way. And anybody who doesn't think there's more to be learned is definitely shortchanging 
the benefit they can have to others because, you know, every case is different. And that's the biggest thing is people are like, Babs, give us a list or Babs, can you publish this? And the reality is if you do that, people don't have to reach out and every single scenario is different. Yeah. You know, it's like a recipe. You know, you can have five different people make chili, but they're all going to taste different. Sure. And it's the exact same thing. You know, there are variables that make a difference in the application of very specific parts of the process that can make a big difference in the, the outcome, potentially. And it sounds, bad like you're very much kind of self-taught that you had that experience and then just asked question after question, observed dogs, and you already, of course, had a, a huge connection with dogs given all the fostering you'd done for all those years. Was there ever any training otherwise that you underwent to supplement your instincts? or No, not really. It's, yeah. um, it, you know, it's been in-the-field in experience and hands-on. Yeah, it's just, and it's been a willingness to, you know, un- unfortunately, there are some cases and some people who do the things that I do out of heroics, for lack of a better word. And mm. the reality is, you know, doing this is an intensely emotional, taxing and tiring venture. And if you don't have that ability to set ego aside and put your need to be successful aside, you really do run the risk of making egregious mistakes. You know, this is one of the things I commonly talk to people about is, you know, they get very caught up in the reunion. And admittedly, I'm guilty on occasion of getting a little more passionate than maybe people understand. But it is not about reunions. Well, that is an amazing thing. And oh, my God, hopefully the outcome. This is life or death. You know, everything we do can directly impact whether or not this animal survives. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. And I mean, again, like I said before, it's a pretty tiny specialized field, but there are people who do go through training and, and there's a veteran pet detective named Kat Albrecht who's been offering training in, in this kind of field for years and years. And others who do this kind of work were actually like uh, human, like detectives, like human detectives or investigators mm-hmm. that sort of veered off into this. So just interesting, but it sounds like you're really you know, largely self, self-taught self and operating on uh, just a lot of experience with a lot of dogs over a lot of years and very honed instincts. Well, but, and, but I will be honest, Duncan, and I'm not by any means knocking it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I absolutely respect Kat and a lot of people, you know, who have gone through formalized training. But a lot of those people also have done so incorporating into a means by which to provide a profession. Um, and, you know, not that by any means I wouldn't do the training if it, you know, if, if the opportunity presented itself and, you know, to, you know, bring more to the table as far as what I do. But yeah. most of those people charge for their services. Um, and, you know, a lot of people talk about me doing it for free. And it's not that I'm out to do anything. I, I just, you know, I think the reason that I have never, um, in fact, it's only been until recent that I have been, um, receptive to donations, although I almost never solicit them. Um, I have turned away <laughs> more times than I can count. I never, ever, ever want money to get in the way of someone getting their dog back. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and more specifically, you just cannot put a price tag, you know, on the lives of these animals and the impacts that they're missing and the journey of getting them back has on people, families, and children. Um, it's, it's profound. I mean, a, a good friend of mine who is one of my volunteers who also does some trapping. I mean, you know, we always joke, but you know, we love to see grown men cry. You know, I have seen more men so emotionally ta- uh, touched, you know, by their experiences with their missing pets. And it's an amazing, it, it reminds you that there are still snippets of humanity out there that people can be vulnerable and that 
there are feelings, not just robots and, you know, people on their cell phones. So, you know, there, there are some huge benefits in what I do beyond just um, saving animals. I mean, it reminds me that humanity is not all bad. Yeah, it has been kind of a distinctive element that you don't accept payment for helping find reunite the, these lost pets with their owners. And so uh, I did speak with a few economists and they all said, well, that's not really a sound business model, but I don't think they understood exactly kind of what you were going for. And it sounds like you've never really needed to, in one way or another, be compensated in those ways. And like you said, you furthermore don't want to have money get in the way of any sort of successful uniting of a dog with owner. So, well, uh, and, and the thing is, is, you know, this is not, I mean, it is technically, I'm a nonprofit. I'm, um, I'm incorporated. That being said, I'm not 501c3. I'm still working on that. But um, what people forget is that this is not a business. I am a, a, a volunteer. I'm a rescue. I'm a nonprofit. I mean, this is not what I do professionally. Um, professional, I'm a real estate agent. Right. You know, this is what I do in my off time in the interest of, you know, perpetuating people getting their, their pets back. Right. Um, but how much, how much off time is it really? To me. There isn't. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. Cause I mean, I'm not sure based on what I know or what little maybe I know about your schedule. It's hard to imagine there's a lot of time left over to sell many houses. But anyway, we'll come back to that maybe at a certain point. But here's what sure. would be, I think, really helpful for, for me to get a better understanding and, and of course our listeners too. So let's just create some sort of fictional situation. So, uh, my dog, I'll say Ralph, just because I don't know why, um, has been missing for like two days. And I initially thought, okay, well, Ralph just slipped out the gate or whatever, and Ralph's coming back. But Ralph hasn't come back. So then I contact you, take me through what happens and how you help me get Ralph back. Well, and, and one of the things I want to say very quickly is don't wait two days. Okay. You know, a lot of people feel the need to let things play out, but they don't understand that the very first things you do are the most important, because what I would tell you at two days is the same thing I would tell you from the very beginning. Um, the craziest piece of advice, and the one thing I cannot give a doesn't that make sense or logical explanation for is dogs come back. Dogs, if left to their own devices, more often than not, and I would say almost always, would return back to the place they left, no matter who they were with, how long they had been there how they felt about the situation. The reality is I have trapped dozens of dogs in driveways where they have jumped out of vehicles where they've never been with people they were scared to death of. But as an owner, you've got to stop looking for your dog because what happens is we as human beings, our immediate instinct is to chase after, try to find, get our dog. Yeah. And when you, when a dog gets out, you know, even the friendliest of dogs, it only takes one experience or in a fearful dog, it's instantaneous to trigger instinct. And while dogs may technically in the animal world be predators, they operate like prey when they're on their own. It's fight or flight, fly or die, and everything is a death sentence to them. So when you chase, you just perpetuate their running, and more specifically, they're completely focused on you and not their surroundings and the other dangers. Yeah. When you go and actively look for your dog, what you do both by foot and in the car, they know cars. I'm telling you people... I have had dogs come up to their owner's vehicles in places. There's no way that dog could have known mom and dad would be sitting. Um, but you spread your scent. You take those familiar things, and that dog who got out and went, oh, okay, that wasn't fun, or, oh, my God, I want my mommy, rather than circling back, is now looking for its people everywhere they've left their footprints of smell. Yeah. So now your dog is on a wild goose chase following 
your smell all over the place. Um, the other thing that people will typically do when they go out looking for their dog is call out for it. Mm-hmm. And there's two things to that. Um, you know, it's, it's controversial, but I mean, I often see things online, people going, go out, call his name, squeak his toy, whistle, do these things, or get a search party together. And, you know, I guess what I would say is the two most egregious things generally you can do is search. You know, I typically ask people, you know, searching and hunting, would you agree that those terms are somewhat synonymous? And more often than not, the answer I get to that is yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you're talking about a dog who thinks everything in the world is going to kill it, and you are hunting it down. It is not going to return, it's not going to settle, and it's going to keep running. And the calling out piece of it, dogs think with their nose, not with their ears. You don't see a dog running around with its ears in the air. It's got its nose in the air to the ground. We as human beings are very effective nonverbal communicators, and I have yet to run into anybody out looking for a dog just casually calling a name like it was a Sunday walk or we're going for a car rut. Typically, they're full of some anxiety and fear and frantic, and the dog hears all of that. They, you know, people hear people say dogs smell fear. They don't smell fear. They read nonverbals, you know, tone of voice, body language, small little nuances that we're not even aware of. And so when you're out screaming for your dog, your dog, who, oh, by the way, you just passed in that bush, it's like, oh, my God, they're trying to kill mom, too. I better wait right here because they don't understand what your anxiety and fear about. They don't know you're worried about them. They think the same things they're afraid of are trying to get you. So, you know, those are the really, really, really huge, huge things is you just got to stop. Ideally, make a phone call to me or someone else like me so that you can get that person who's a little less emotionally attached to guide you through the steps, to talk you through your fears, to help you manage the obstacles, but more specifically to take the right steps, you know, That is key because the rest of the world is very happy to tell you your dog's going to get eaten by coyotes and, oh, my God, it's going to get run over on the freeway. I mean, they want to read. Everybody goes to the same place you do in your head. And what I will tell you is by no means am I saying that those fears and those feelings and that panic and, and everything that goes with that is unjustified or invalid. They are absolutely legitimate, but that is what kills dogs. When we start acting based on our panic and not very specific steps, that's when we set our dogs up for failure inadvertently or miss opportunities. Um, Oftentimes, myself and others that do what I do have that painful experience of coaching an owner through what to do. Okay, so if you see your dog, here's how you're going to handle it. Here's what you need to be prepared for. Don't call out to your dog. Dog shows up, and there they go. And the dog runs. Mm -hmm. And they learn a very painful, powerful first lesson, but now they know, you know, and it's tough, but it's, it's almost impulsive. Right. You well, need somebody to talk you through it. Right. Well, again, I think we've addressed a couple of the, the things that we had, had each alluded to earlier in our conversation that, that again, I think are super counterintuitive for a lot of people who, who, of course, walk around the neighborhood, drive around the neighborhood, call out to Ralph or whoever, and uh, thinking they're doing all the right things, which, of course, as we've just learned, are, are exactly the opposite. So once people have been coached or now know not to do those things to, from the get-go and they do contact you, then how do you help uh, move forward while avoiding, you know, while we hopefully have all avoided those uh, those pitfalls? Uh, how do you help us find Ralph? Well, first of all, you don't find Ralph. Ralph finds you. Yeah. Um, 
the very first thing we all do when we race out is close everything up, or better yet, we go to bed at night and start over in the morning. So Ralph just came home to lock and close doors and left again. Or Ralph came back in the middle of the night, because that's when they often do, and you had gone to bed assuming there's nothing to be gained at night, and you'll start again in the morning. So I'm going to coach people through what to do. You know, the really key, key, key components are until you have a reason to believe otherwise, because they don't all come back, but until you have a reason to believe otherwise, you need to lay the foundation to set that dog up for success and a safe return. Immediate open access is paramount. An open door, not a gate, an open door, if they're an indoor dog or gate, if they're an outdoor dog, is paramount. Doggy doors, you know, when Ralph comes running into the house and he's got a coyote on his high knee, he's not navigating the doggy door. He's going to do a flyby. Mm. You've got to allow them immediate access to the property. Then, rather than spreading our smell, we give our dog targets to focus on. We use our smell or smells of things that are important to the dog to lure it back to the house. One of the very first things people will tell me they've done, because that's what everybody on the humane, or that's what uh, the internet says, is put the dog bed out. That's, pardon my French, asinine. You want the dog to come sleep inside and get comfortable in its house. It's running around with itself. It's not looking for itself. This is all about getting the dog home. This is about luring the dog. And ultimately, the dog is looking for you. So what I will tell people, I always preface it with a little bit of a discussion because what I tell them is you take either a dirty sock or a dirty pair of underwear and you put one by that open door and you tuck another into a bush or a tree. And the reason that we do that is dogs, at least friendly dogs, the first thing they do when they meet people is nose butt them in the crotch and smell their feet. And that is because that is where we as human beings carry our strongest, most identifiable odors. So by using a dirty sock or a dirty pair of underwear or a sock you put in your underwear, actually an owner suggested that. That was brilliant. She's like, ah, I'm a little uncomfortable putting my panties out front. <laughs> and she goes, but what if I put a sock in like a panty liner? I'm like, that's brilliant. And I use that now. You know, I'm like, hey, can I tell other people that? Um, you know, you want to put one by that open door, not all around, not in multiple locations. You want your dog to hit one spot. Mm-hmm. Then the other reason we hit that bush or a tree is because We don't want to spread smell, but we want the wind to carry the smell further. Um, Dogs have been reported to be able to smell water a mile away and a dog in heat two miles away. You know, if you put that article up in in a bush where the wind can go through it, not flapping in the wind's carry, but the wind can go through it, it will carry that smell further. So when Ralph comes out from under his bush and sticks his nose in the air trying to find mom or dad, then he gets that odor. So that's very, very, very important. Yeah. Um, the reason we put one up in a bush or a tree is because the higher you go, the more the wind blows. Sure. Um, and then, and then we appeal to the next layers of instinct. You know, instinct for dog is fight or flight, fly or die. There's no gray area. There's no pause in between. And that's why a lot of times dogs will run from their owners when they immediately call out because they didn't get that opportunity to go. Oh, it's safe. Mm-hmm. But once they have figured out fight or flight. And either hunker down for a couple days or found a safe place right from the beginning, they then move on to survival. Dogs will almost never, you know, in Southern California, I say never. And I'll be frank, I've had a dog in Alaska and a dog in all sorts of other crazy places that have proven it to be almost an always statement. But generally speaking, dogs do not starve to death. 
They do not die of dehydration and they do not die of the elements. And that's one of the big things I spend time with people doing is talking them out of their panic and fear that is founded on assumptions that are inaccurate. Um, dogs will hunt. They will forage. They'll eat roadkill. They will find food. Doesn't mean they'll be fat. Doesn't mean they won't be hungry, but they'll find food. You know, dogs that you see emaciated typically have been miscared for and then dumped or are sick. Um, they'll find water. You know, we had a little beagle, uh, Jack Russell Terrier mix named Riley that spent two weeks on a granite mountaintop and didn't think she could get down. And, in fact, we were concerned. It's one thing when they can get to their resources. It's another when they're stranded in a location that enabled what we thought uh, disabled her ability to get to her resources. We even hiked water up that granite mountain because we were seriously concerned she was not going to make it. Mm. That dog was up there two weeks before we got her secure and never once hit our food or our water, despite there being nothing. We've trapped lots of dogs in the desert um, and shelter. They will typically figure that out as well. Um, You know, those are not the things that you have to be concerned about. But going back to kind of where I started with that is, you know, you hear people say, put food out. Kibble is not going to get your dog home. Really strong, powerful smells are going to make sure when your dog starts looking for food, your house or wherever you left or where you got in that car accident or where it jumped out of your car at the grocery store or whatever, smells like the best dinner on the block. And so... Depending on scenario, you know, I'll coach people to do different things. If they're home, you know, pour chicken broth on a bush or a tree. The reality is you don't need Ralph grazing in the front yard. Ralph needs to come inside where mm-hmm. he's safe. Yeah. But if they're out, like, in public settings, like a park or a hike or a walk or wherever, you know, I'll have them put a hot, fresh rotisserie chicken on the roof of their car with a lid off so that that wind will really grab that smell and lure the dog in. You I know that there are people out there who have had different experiences, and there are certainly always exceptions to the rule. But generally speaking, nobody, you don't find your dog looking for it, and the mass quantity of people that go out looking for dogs don't find them either. It's typically some other person, and they go pick it up from that other person. Some other person sees that dog. And your efforts and these mass search parties you hear sometimes, especially in catastrophic events, you know, they're misappropriated resources. Because now you had two dozen people out searching for five hours, and in five hours they could have gotten up 500 flyers or posters, which would have covered 10,000 people, you know, and more often than not, you don't find the dog. Um, But you have certainly pushed it right out of the area or led it further into harm's way because it's frightened. Um, You know, I mean, it's it's really about coaching. I mean, I do a lot of, you know, I I do an enormous amount of work in the field if it's local or close. Um, there are some occasions where I'll travel to support field work with, I mean, limited travel, um, because I just, for whatever reason, feel driven to do so or feel like it's a bit of a necessity to get to the end result. Um, you know, but I, 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 in fact, I've got a a young lady, Dublin was the name of the dog, um, who spent two months on its, on her own in Georgia, as a matter of fact, and, um, a larger majority of that on the side of a freeway, you know, and, not only did I coach that owner on what to do and how to change what they had done, because for I think five weeks when we first met, there hadn't been a lot of great coaching about what to do and how to handle it, and a lot of mistakes had been made, and it was, dog got sudden and people showed up, and it became chaos, and they were setting traps that were the wrong size in the wrong place right in the dog's face. Um, and I was able to kind of get her redirected and then coached her over the phone on getting an appropriate trap and how to get that trap set and so forth, because... You know, one of the really big things I want your listeners to hear 
is people, follow people like myself or others, and very quickly get very excited about traps. And what they don't understand is that trapping is an art. It's not a science. It's not black and white. It's not just throwing out a box and a dog gets in it. You set a trap, wrong kind, wrong size, wrong place, wrong time, you could make your dog completely untrappable. Mm. And you can have catastrophic consequences. And so it's not just this tool. There's a lot that goes into determining how and when and where you do it. Yeah. Um, but I'm always coaching. I mean, I coach tons of people over the phone on, on how to do that. And sometimes I've even had other, you know, rescuers or trappers reach out and say, Babs, you know, I've got this. Because I do the same. In fact, I've got a good friend of mine who I've been talking to on a very difficult dog I'm working on, you know, who's going to come down and help me. You know, the reality is you have, if you think you know everything and you get tunneled into your box and your way of doing it, sometimes that means you might risk a dog an opportunity miss, because they're all different. Things. They think yeah. for themselves. Yeah. Well, Bab, unfortunately, we're just about at the end of our time, but a couple of quick okay. things. One is if you're, since it sounds like you do so many phone consultations, I don't know if you're willing to give that, that phone number for people who might want to follow up some questions with you or be in the midst of trying to find their own dog. But Absolutely. If, okay, so go ahead. It's 619 619- And also you do a lot of work on uh, social media, uh, Facebook in particular. So Babs Fry on on Facebook and uh, and then, you know, we would have gotten into some other things like uh, signs and posters, whatever. But unfortunately, we we covered all this other stuff. But I think it's really helpful because I think the, the counterintuitive stuff and the things that people do naturally... Uh, that are the wrong things. I think we've really pointed out sort of the downsides of that and how the, what the upsides of the other sides of smell and scent and making it easy for the dogs to come back, other things that people just inadvertently, of course, m- making the obstacles along the way. So I think we've really uh, learned a lot, and they can follow up with you by phone or look at the Facebook page and find out more. So, Babs, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals, and uh, thanks for all your great work uh, finding all these uh, lost animals and fostering a bunch uh, on top of that. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Dr. Dale Hurd of the University of Florida about the large alligator named Bob that Dr. Hurd and his colleagues recently treated, making national news. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a talking animal's favorite, Joe Zimmerman, with part of a piece called Pet Snakes in today's comedy corner on talking animals on WMNF. I have a phobia of snakes. That's normal. It's weird that people have pet snakes when there's so many fluffy pet options available. <laughs> How does that go? You want the puppy? Wants to be your best friend. It's a rescue. Or you could get the cold-blooded reptile that's banging its head against the glass. Sure looks like it hates you. (laughs) It's the opposite of a rescue. It's an attack. It's it's actually what we rescued the rescue from, so... That's why we keep them separated. With bulletproof glass. Oh, you want more information on the limbless serpent? That surprises me. Um, let's see. I know it has infrared vision like the predator monster. And it's been the symbol for evil since the beginning of time. Which seems like a red flag. 
That was Joe Zimmerman with part of a piece called Pet Snakes, taken from his album Smiling at Wolves. Now it's time to speak with Dr. Hurd about the newly famous alligator named Bob. This is Dr. Daryl Hurd on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Dr. Hurd. Good morning. Thank you for joining me on Talking Animals this morning. My pleasure. So, so let's talk uh, about Bob. I mean, this was not just any gator off the street or out of the swamp as evidenced by his having a name, Bob. So tell me yeah. a bit about Bob and what set this kind of whole medical intervention in motion. Okay, so I'm the, uh, the veterinarian. For uh, the University of Florida, I provide veterinary services to the uh, St. Augustine Alligator Farm Zoological Park. And Bob is at the, uh, at the zoo or zoological park. Um, so Bob, uh, when on one of our visits, the last time we were out, uh, the, uh, one of the curators indicated that uh, Bob was not using his back right leg. An initial exam showed some pain, so we need to get some radiographs. So, so very basic, we just brought, the, uh, brought Bob into the University of Florida, the veterinary teaching hospital, um, to get radiographs um, and to check, check his leg. And so but Bob is well, yeah, one of a number, a good number of large alligators at the, at the park, and uh, Interestingly enough, the, the curators that work with them do know them, and certain animals have more um, personality than others, so they have their own name. And so what are the issues, Dr. Hurd, that you and your colleagues grapple with when taking the kind of steps that you did to say, okay, Bob's got some kind of issue, uh, let's see what we can do to help him? It seems complicated and, and, and maybe even a bit risky on a few levels. Yeah, that's that's a, a big consideration. I mean, he was over 12 feet long. He's 660 pounds, um, and obviously has big, powerful jaws and a and a tail. So there are some hazards involved in um, capturing him, not only for the people personnel, but also for the for him as well. But the uh, the people here that I work with are, are very good at capturing him. So, but we did have to just so that he didn't um, injure anyone. We did sedate him for the procedure. Yeah. So. And, use drugs to do sorry yeah oh sorry no so when you did get him sedated and you could really take a close look what was his condition and how is he now so the the, the concern was is whether he had a, a fracture of his uh, uh femur which is the you know the, the bone in the, the leg next to the hip um or whether he had a luxation it appears now that he's probably got a bone infection of the proximal part of the of the femur so based on that information we got from the radiographs, we're treating him with um, an antibiotic um, that he's given orally and then also an um, analgesic, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory to help um, with the pain. So they have to be both given orally, and what they've done is we give them, uh, give them tablets um, in a food item, and he's still eating, so he can take that every couple of days. So the uh, fortunately for us, the reptiles don't have a very high metabolic rate, and so drug dosing is going to be less frequent than you would do, say, for a human. So you don't have to give it every day. I see, because I was thinking sometimes just giving my dog a pill is, can be challenging. So <laughs> I would think giving a gator uh, one would be no uh, small thing. So, yeah. um, so, so Doctor Hurd, so is the prognosis pretty good for Bob? Or oh, at the moment, I would say yes. You know, it's still okay. a little bit. Yeah, we're a little bit guarded. I think um, we're going to treat for a long term um, with antibiotics. And yeah. see how he does. They are pretty tough animals. Um, and in terms of overcoming infections and so forth, um, and adapting to uh, to injury as well. Yeah. And were you surprised by the situation with treating Bob going viral the way it did, becoming sort of a national, if not international, news story? Yeah, we were, we were rather surprised. Although I thought it might be of interest to people. I mean, obviously, 
taking a large alligator to the uh, to Gatorland, basically the University of Florida. So yeah. Uh, I thought that would sort of have its own appeal as well. For sure. And plus there's at least one, if not more, striking photos of Bob on kind of a, like a gurney yeah. or whatever that I think you could, it catches people's attention no matter how you slice it. So uh, Yeah, he looks like a large, you know, prehistoric creature. Right, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so anyways, well, this is all very interesting, and I'm glad to hear that the prognosis looks pretty good for Bob. So, Dr. Hurd, thank you so much for uh, joining us and filling us in on uh, Bob's uh, condition and uh, how things are looking for the future for him. Oh, I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, my pleasure. And he can always be seen at the St. Augustine Alligator Farm and Zoological Park. So oh, thank oh, you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm Duncan Strauss. You're listening to Talking Animals coming up at 11 on WMNF. It's Rob Lurie with Radioactivity followed at noon by Midpoint with Nola Lay. Then the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues hosted by Harrison Nash. Followed by Scott L. in the All Souls edition of It's the Music. Just want to review too. A couple people have asked uh, we were speaking earlier with Babs Fry. It's B-A-B-S, like the nickname often for Barbara, Babs Fry, F-R-Y. And the phone number is 619-249-2221. 619-249-2221. It's time now to play Name That Animal Tune, and the prize will be a Talking Animals t-shirt. We return to the original way of responding, which means... You call, not email, 813-239-9663 and correctly identify this particularly relevant animal song. You will win yourself a Talking Animals t-shirt. Just name that animal tune, a Talking Animal. See you later, alligator. Well, I saw my baby walking. If you can name that animal tune, we'll take your call off the air after we finish the show because we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. I invite you to return next Wednesday at 10 a.m. with my guest will be George Heinrich, a field biologist and an environmental educator specializing in Florida reptiles, particularly turtles. So we'll chiefly be talking turtles on next week's show. Also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast, links to all our social media, and more. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. Stay tuned for Rob Lorai. This is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Thanks. <laughs>